You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Dominic Chu in for Kelly Evans today. So here's what's coming up. Markets are lower, but not by much. The recent rebound petering out just a bit. Our stock's just destined to bounce along the bottom for a while. We'll find out. Plus, shortage to glut. Lumber prices are tumbling down nearly 60% in just three months. And now there's an oversupply, believe it or not. Is this a sign of broader deflationary pressures? And we're getting you ready for earnings from DocuSign and Stitch Fix and Vail Resorts. All coming up, the action, the story, and the trade on each of those in the earnings exchange today. But we begin with today's market action. I will take you through some of those numbers right now. And because we did mention that marginal move lower, a lot of this might be just jockeying for position ahead of that very big Consumer Price Index CPI report coming out for U.S. inflation tomorrow morning. We got a big ECB, European Central Bank, interest rate decision, maybe weighing on things. Slightly worse than expected jobless claims numbers. But on balance, you got a 50-point loss for the Dow. That's about one-tenth of 1% decline. The S&P is above 4,100, 4,104 still, even though it's down 11 points or about a quarter of 1%. And the Nasdaq Composites, 12,031, down about 55 points or roughly half a percent declines here. One place to keep an eye on is what's happening with transportation stocks. We are seeing some relative strength in FedEx today, but overall, that transportation index has weaker on the day, down by about nearly 3.5%, and has been on a kind of near-term downtrend for a while, despite a bounce off the lows. Some folks still look at this transportation index as one of those places that could be a more leading indicator for how things go in the rest of the market. So we'll keep an eye on this particular ETF, the IYT, which tracks the Dow Jones Transports Index. And then the stock of the day right now is Meta. Meta platforms and now officially Meta in terms of the ticker overall. Today was the official ticker change for Meta platforms, down 2.5%, losing some steam throughout the course of the session. But remember, this is a stock at this point that has gone from a near $1.1 trillion valuation at the highs over the last year, now to become worth roughly about $520 to $530 billion. That's how far the decline has been. It has some traders and investors wondering whether that metaverse trade that could play out over the next several years is worth looking into at these valuations. It has fallen quite a bit, so we'll keep an eye on that. Now, inflation concerns and aggressive interest rate hikes may be weighing on stocks overall, but my next guest says this is just a non-recessionary slump. He says stocks are bouncing along the bottom, and he's pretty optimistic about the second half of the year. Joining me now is Chris Grisanti, Chief Equity Strategist and Senior Portfolio Manager at MAI Capital Management. Uh, Chris, This has been the question a lot of folks have been asking about whether or not there's another leg lower right now. But you feel more constructive. Take us through why, given all those macro headwinds we've just talked about. Sure, Dom. Well, Dom, it's nice to see you again and nice to be with you. Um, Well, first of all, to to set the the backdrop. So in 2011 and 2018, we had non-recessionary market slumps. And both times, the market dropped almost exactly 19%. And on March 20th of this year, the market closed at its low, and it was down 18.7%. So maybe history is not the same, but maybe it's rhyming pretty closely. Now, of course, that assumes there's not going to be a recession, which I, I think if there is, we have considerably more downside. But we feel strongly 
that there probably won't be. And, and we have about five or six reasons. That the biggest reasons, last time I was here, well, actually several times ago, maybe three months ago, we were so upset that the yield curve was slightly inverted. Well, that's completely reversed. The yield curve remains positively sloped. We've never had a recession without a, a sharp yield curve inversion. Long rates have stabilized at about 3% on the 10-year. By the way, that's below the 20-year average in the 10-year. As you just mentioned, lumber's been cut down, wages are rising more slowly, semiconductors, shipping containers, all of those things have moderated in price. Clearly, energy is the exception, and that's a concern, but everything else seems to be going the right way. And finally, I'd ask your viewers, does it feel like a recession? Have you lost your job? Are the restaurants full? Are you paying a lot for airfares? Are the stadiums sold out? Are you paying tons for those seats? And I think the answer is yes for all those things. It's, it's a, it doesn't feel like a recession out there, and therefore, we have a, a decent amount of confidence for the second half. All right, so if there is confidence then, I mean, you're absolutely right. Anecdotally speaking, real life is not indicating all of those recessionary signs just yet, but they do tend to catch people off guard. I wonder in this kind of an environment, right, are there opportunities that you are finding now? We know value outperforms growth. It has been for a while, but there's got to be places that are more attractive than others right now. Where are those in your mind? Sure. Well, one stock that, that we really like is Air Products. And, and Air Products is, is typical of what we'd be looking for, and I, I might suggest your viewers might look for now, which is, which is a, a stock in a commodity area, but that also has high returns on equity. They, they sell industrial gases. And for example, they're a huge beneficiary of, of the move towards LNG. They, they also are a beneficiary of inflation. So they're selling hydrogen and liquid nitrogen. And, and there's only three companies that do that on a global scale. They're one of them. And so you get the best of both worlds. You get a growth company that's also in a value area that can take advantage of inflation. So stuff like that, we, we really like. Now, the, the, the capital markets activity, the, the volatility that we've seen, does that at all present an opportunity? Is it in the banks? Yeah, Is it elsewhere right now? Dom, great question, man. Because what, what we're really liking here is Intercontinental Exchange, or ICE. And that's a financial stock that, again, we, we don't like a lot of ups and downs cyclical exposure. But here's a financial without credit risk or interest rate risk. They, they are the largest player in the energy markets. They basically own the Brent contract. And what better market would you want to be in now? They don't care what the price of oil is. They just care that the volumes are high and that the volatility is high. And boy, do, do we have that right now. The stock is down a bunch because they also have a mortgage servicing business. Now, again, I'd emphasize servicing, not, not credit risk and not making mortgages, but they service them. And of course, anything with mortgage in it right now has been tainted. So they're bouncing along 10-year low PE ratios right now for ICE. And we really think that's an opportunity for the long term. It's a great company. All right. Intercontinental Exchange and Air Products Group, the two big picks from Chris Grisanti. Thank you very much. We'll see you soon, Chris. Thank you, Don. All right, so the 30-year bond auction is up here. Rick Santelli is tracking all the action down in Chicago. Take us through the action. What's going on? Well, this was definitely the best of breed, Dom. Uh, 19 billion 30-year bonds rounding out the trifecta of supply at 96 billion. And the grade, A minus. The yield, 3.185. It was definitely stopped through by a basis point and a half with the one issue market trading around 3.20, 320, 
3.20 down to 3.185, lower yield, higher price. If we look at all the metrics, they were all near or slightly above 10 auction average. Nothing really jumped out at me. The fact that it priced so well with all the metrics in place really shows that the longest maturity with the biggest yield, well, technically the 20 years of higher yield, but it's a three-legged stool. If you're looking for liquidity and you want to own a good yielding instrument in a world where many yields are lower, 30-year bond may be it, and everyone seemed to have stepped up to the plate, Dom. As you look at that intraday chart, you could clearly see that we've dropped several basis points after this auction and all the supply from the Treasury on the coupon side is completed. Back to you. All right, demand looks good, and dealers didn't have to take so much this time around. Rick Santelli, thank you very much for the action on that 30-year long bond. So now call it the Netflix of gaming. Microsoft today releasing an Xbox app for smart TVs, enabling consumers to stream and play games without actually buying the console itself. All you need is the controllers. The new app is launching at the end of the month in partnership with Samsung. It's the first smart TV platform to carry it. It's going to cost 15 bucks a month, and it gives players access to a library of hundreds of video games that they can stream right to their TV. So for more on what this means for gaming and the competition, let's bring in Doug Clinton, Loop Ventures, for more on just what this does do to the videoscape land, video game landscape. And, and I wonder, Doug, is this a game changer? Is this one that kind of resets everybody in terms of that content versus hardware discussion? I think it does. I think that Microsoft, really more than any other company in gaming, is sort of changing the nature of the business by combining hardware in the cloud with, I think, great content that they're going to have with Bethesda, which was an acquisition a couple of years ago, and then Activision, which probably closes later this year or early next year. I think they've married the two worlds perfectly. And so I think they're really setting the bar as high as it can be. And competitors you know, like Sony or some of these other companies that have dabbled and maybe intimated that they're interested in getting into gaming, they have to decide if they're really serious and compete with Microsoft on this kind of content, really high-end content uh, paradigm. So, so let's put the kind of rubber to the road situation here, Doug. Does then Sony's PlayStation do other console makers have to now match what Microsoft is doing and how much in resources do they have to kind of put? How much of a first mover advantage does Microsoft have here with Samsung? I think Microsoft has probably two steps. I mean, the one thing with Sony that is interesting for them is obviously they have a TV business already. It's not as big as Samsung's business, but they can probably move fairly quickly and at least get a product on market. I think the bigger challenge for a company like Sony or, again, anybody else who might want to try to get into this streaming gaming space is really having enough breadth of content to compete. And that's really where I think Microsoft has probably strategically been thinking about this for years, if not maybe the better part of a decade. You know, if Sony wants to compete, if others want to compete, I think they have to think about going out into the market and maybe making acquisition of one of these uh, mid to smaller size publishers out there. So what's, so you bring up an interesting point here, because when it comes to video games, they are big business, but they're not the primary business for companies like Sony or Microsoft, for that matter. They're, it's dwarfed by other parts of Microsoft right now. When you do look at content versus hardware, you mentioned the content side of things. How much more important will this be for the content publishers, people like Electronic Arts 
or Activision Blizzard or other video game publishers. Is that the play here or is it Microsoft or Sony? I think it could be both. I mean, in terms of how we're positioning, if we look at our portfolio, gaming is the biggest position in our portfolio right now. We feel very comfortable owning gaming stocks, whether we go into recession or not. They've sort of proven to be a little bit countercyclical. They don't get hit as hard as other sort of digital consumer names, uh, things in e-commerce or things in advertising. And so the answer is, I think, some of both. The thing that's so unique, I think, and important about content is that there's just so few truly great content titles out there. And we really like to invest in companies that build true worlds. Take-Two is one of the bigger positions in our portfolio. Obviously, their crown jewel is Grand Theft Auto. They're still working off of an eight-year-old game now with Grand Theft Auto, and it's still one of the top revenue-generating games in the world. So if you think about the power of content, I think that tells a lot of the story. It's a world that's been around. It's arguably stale because it's almost a decade old, and people still go and play it because they've done such a great job updating the world with new experiences for players. More than a decade old. I, I remember GTA back when I was in my early to mid-20s as well. Doug Clinton, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Coming up on the show, lumber prices have been taken to the woodshed, so to speak, plunging 60% from their March highs. So what's to blame for the overstock in supply? We'll get a view from the C-suite coming up next, plus a rare interview with one of the most prominent impact-oriented activist investors out there. We'll hear from Impactive Capital's Lauren Taylor Wolf fresh offer presentation at the Sone Investor Conference. That's coming up. The exchange is back after this break. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back to The Exchange. We've heard a lot about supply chain shortages, outages, linkages, but what about the oversupply story? There are now some indications lumber is suffering from that very particular problem. Prices are down more than 50% over the last year as housing demand cools off, plus supply lines have now caught up, perhaps almost too much. J.P. Morgan noting that supply is, quote, flush at retailers like Home Depot, also Lowe's, while foot traffic in stores has slowed down a bit. And one of the biggest lumber producers in North America, Canfor, is saying on its earnings call it cuts sawmill production to manage oversupply in their warehouses. So if the leading inflation indicator from the pandemic period, or at least one of them, has now come crashing down to earth, is this now the leading deflationary indicator? Let's bring in Kyle Little, Sherwood Lumber's chief operating officer. I mean, Kyle, I've watched your segments on this show talking about the supply-demand dynamics. It, it, it caught a lot of people off guard. How did it shift so quickly? Well, uh, thank you for having me again, Dom. Great, great to be here. Um, we have... Uh, you know, been uh, very much in the forefront of what's happening in regard to supply chain. I don't think supply chain was a big word until we started to really talk about it in lumber and how product was getting into the market about two years ago. And uh, we indicated on your show um, uh, in the in the past that uh, we were in a cyclical bull wave and it was going to last for uh, uh, 24 to uh, 30 months. We're in month 25 of that. And we're right now really about a month or two away of confirming of, of finally confirming from a technical perspective that that cycle is officially over and we're moving into a, a new cycle. Uh, and uh, 
all, all indications are, and again, uh, earlier this year, lumber had even more of a supply chain problem early on this year and was set to actually move to all-time highs, even higher than what we saw in 2020 and 21. And uh, it wasn't able to do so because we've seen a substantial change on, on the demand side and on the supply side. All right. So let's talk about I'm a, I'm a homeowner. I, I put in my deck before the pandemic. In retrospect, the timing looks good. I also use PVC versus wood, but I still had to use wood for the frame and everything else. Should homeowners, should consumers out there go out and start green lighting some of those lumber projects or is there more downside to come? Well, I think in this cycle and uh, we would say that with the pen up demand and also the backlog of current uh, um, orders, uh, that lumber is probably going to trade in from a historical standpoint, a higher range than what we have historically been. So, uh, just to put it in perspective, today the, the forward contract is at 562. The 20-year average is below $400. So we still are very, very high based on historical standards. Uh, that being said, and, and we'll, we'll likely go a little bit lower than where we are today, uh, but we are in the process of redefining the new range. We call it in our office kind of the great reset into what the new lumber uh, cycle uh, range will we'll trade in over the next uh, 12 to 18 months. All right, and Kyle, before we let you go, you're the expert here on lumber. You're a C-suite executive. Take us through whether or not you are worried about higher interest rates. We're very much worried about that. And any indication that your business will suffer because of Fed policy? Well, we, we've, we've already seen that. And that we indicated that uh, earlier on this year. We felt that the first half of this year was going to be very, very good with the catch-up of the current uh, um, supply side uh, issues and the demand um, uh, forefront that we had. Uh, second half of the year was going to, going to be uh, very much in question uh, and of a concern of uh, future growth. Ultimately, we predicted demand destruction. I think we're starting to see that right now. All right. It could be a big trade in the second half of the year here on the home building side of things. Kyle Little, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Have a good day, sir. Thank you, Dominic. All right. Coming up next on the show, we are breaking down the nuts and bolts, literally, and the companies responsible for putting together aircraft, planes. We've got some under-the-radar stocks to help your portfolio take flight. But first, it's been a downhill for Vail Resorts, riding an eight-month losing streak don't look now, but DocuSign is up 40% from its 52-week lows just four weeks ago. And then Stitch Fix is trying to snap an 11-month downturn. What should investors be watching in results after the closing bell today? We've got all that coming up in the earnings exchange after the break. We're back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. Time now for the earnings exchange where we get the action, the story, and the trade in three names set to report results after the closing bell today. First up, you've got DocuSign. Shares falling today after getting a boost from its newly expanded partnership agreement with Microsoft in yesterday's session. But it's now 70% off the highs as in-person business really gets going and kicks off and resumes our own Frank Holland has the story on this one. And joining us now with the trades today is Nancy Tangler. She's the CEO of Laffer Tangler Investments. So let's get to the story first. Frank, I'll hand it over to you. 
Well, hey there, Dom. Uh, earnings coming up after the bell today. We know that their estimates are for revenues of 582 million, EPS of 46 cents a share, but that's not really the number to watch. The number to watch here is billings. That's actually a backward-looking metric, but this time it's going to be really insightful about the future of DocuSign. If that number can meet estimates, that's a very good sign that even as we enter a quasi-post-pandemic environment, hard to say we're past the pandemic, but an environment where, as you mentioned, people are doing more things in person, including signing documents in person, like houses, cars, etc. Are they able to maintain that customer strength and possibly customer growth? That's something to watch right there. Also, the company's sensitivity to a few other macro factors, including the 10-year yield, which we've seen pop above 3%, the rising dollar, which we've seen throughout the last month or so. If you look at the stock performance of DocuSign over the last month, it's up more than 25%. Some of that obviously a big boost from that Microsoft partnership announced yesterday, but also a lot of people are believing that this stock could be actually just too cheap to ignore, that its services as we go into the hopefully post-pandemic world are still in need and people will still want to be able to sign things remotely and also that Microsoft partnership tied to remote work also giving another boost to the stock. All right, so there's the story and we get all of those aspects of it. And Nancy, I turn to you now because this was a pandemic story. That pandemic seems like it was yesterday's story, right? Or two years ago's story at this point. Is this one of those companies that has a bright future even without a pandemic spur? So, Dom, I think Frank is right that this is a company that's become very cheap. I mean, we, we look at relative price to sales ratio and it entered into our ranges recently. It's down 71% from the peak, so it's tempting uh, for investors. And we've seen multiple contraction, but it still trades at 45 times next year's earnings. And I think um, the billings question, as Frank mentioned, is going to be the, the all important thing to watch today. They have a very tough comp year over year. Uh, last year, billings were up 54%. So the company has has a tough comp. They're expected to come in around nine. If they meet that, the stock will probably be fine. Um, but I actually think you also have to pay attention to their new go-to-market strategy because they need to raise average revenue per customer. So I'm on the sidelines with this one. I want to see what comes out of earnings. Valuation is there for sure. Uh, and there is you know, potential growth with the new Microsoft deal. But uh, some of these, these really high flyers have come down to earth and they may still have further to go. All right. Now, uh, by the way, thank you very much, Frank, for the story there. A quick programming note here. DocuSign CEO Dan Springer will join TechCheck tomorrow morning to discuss those big earnings results after our close today. He'll be live 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, a first on interview that you will not want to miss with DocuSign CEO tomorrow on TechCheck. Next up, Stitch Fix. Shares are down 55% this year as the subscriber growth slows and the path to profitability still isn't clear for that company. CNBC.com retail reporter Lauren Thomas has the story on this here. Lauren, can Stitch Fix get things going in the right direction? Yeah, Dom, that's the big question, right? This company has certainly been pressured, not just this year, um, but you know, for, for a number of months now, shares down about 55% year to date, like you said. Um, if you do recall, last quarter, Stitch Fix cut its revenue outlook for this fiscal year. It also totally withdrew its earnings guidance, saying that there were a number of things that it needed to reevaluate, really its cost structures. So that includes marketing expenses, you know, supply chain expenses, which are certainly weighing on a number of companies right now. 
The big thing that Stitch Fix really has to figure out, under CEO Elizabeth Spalding, the company rolled out this new direct buy option. It's called Freestyle. And essentially last quarter, what the company told us is that rollout didn't go as smooth as planned. The company didn't onboard as many customers as it anticipated. So we're really looking for improvement there this quarter. The one other thing I'll mention is last quarter, Stitch Fix was pl- uh, facing supply chain delays anywhere between four to five weeks. So we're certainly looking for that timeline to uh, decelerate some as well. All right, Lauren, let's turn now to Nancy. As an investor, how important is profitability in this kind of an environment where interest rates are on the rise? Yeah, I I think this company uh, is one you want to avoid at all costs. I mean, it's down 42% from the IPO. Uh, They, as, 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 um, was just mentioned, the freestyle rollout was terrible. Uh, The leadership has been challenged and subscriber growth in this return to fashion time has declined 161,000 quarter over quarter and they've guided down twice in the last uh, two quarters. So I I think that um, you really have to stand aside and say there's probably a better place to be in retailer if by some miracle they beat, uh, I'd take the gain and, and run because I, I just think this company is doomed, All right. frankly. It, it could be a volatile trade for sure with a stock that's been beaten up as badly as that. Lauren Thomas, thank you very, very much for the story on, on Stitch Fix. Mm-hmm. Finally, we're going to turn to what's happening now with Vail Resorts. Those shares are down 20% on the year as macro headwinds persist. While folks are eager to travel post-pandemic, we know this, consumers are also dealing with surging inflation, sky-high fuel costs to get anywhere right now, road trip or otherwise. However, shares have jumped now in three of its last four reports. Our own travel guru, Seema Modi, has the story on Vail. Are as many people going to be out there skiing in the coming months ahead? That's what we want to know, Dom. Vail has come under pressure in recent months. Uh, specifically earlier this year, there were pictures of ski resorts overcrowded, uh, and Vail Fail became a hashtag that was trending on social media, customers blaming the company for selling too many passes. Now, since then, it's raised the price of its epic ski pass. Question now is going into the 2022-2023 ski season, what do sales look like? Are there plans to add more staff to the mountains to reduce the wait time at the ski lift? And is a very strong summer travel season encouraging people to book trips for the winter? Vail has historically had a very strong pipeline as well, Dom. A uh, presence in Europe and Australia, which people might not necessarily know. They tend to think of Vail um, as they should. So that will also be a key topic of interest when the company reports. All right. So, Seema, those are all excellent points. I wonder, Nancy, if you're an investor in a company like this, is, it isn't just travel and leisure, but it's very seasonal travel and leisure. It has to be, there has to be a lot of forecasting and expectation that goes into the investment thesis for a company like Vail. What exactly then does the Vail story tell you about whether you should be buying the stock or not? Yeah, this is a tough one. It's really interesting to me, Don, because it has come down. It's experienced multiple contraction. It's down 25% a year to date. Has a dividend yield of 3%, which is interesting. But 90% of revenue comes from the the ski resorts. And I actually, my residence is in Incline Village, Nevada, which is Lake Tahoe. And we're in a, a, a very long seasonal drought. I mean, it's been many years now. And so this one has the added uh, difficulty of forecasting snow fall patterns and they haven't been good. So the ski pass sales are important, of course, and and we'll be watching that in the earnings report, Um, but we're really not gonna know anything until later this summer. And and so I think that's why you have people sitting on the sidelines waiting to see what's gonna happen. And the forecasts for snowfall are are really not robust. So that's, that's just something that has to be thought about as well. 
All right. So the big trade there on vacations in the wintertime. Thank you very much, Seema Modi. And also for Nancy Tangler, thanks so much, both of you, for joining us today on the Earnings Exchange. Well, still ahead on the show, the players behind the plane. We're looking at some under-the-radar names that help us kind of get those planes in the air, help them fly, including this one. This stock in the mystery chart is down 14, or rather 24% over the course of this year. It has to do with navigation systems. The name, what it makes, all of that coming up ahead after this break. Welcome back to The Exchange. Markets right now are in the red, but not by a lot on a relative basis. You can see the Dow is down about 147 points. At the lows of the day, we were down roughly 232 points. At the highs, we were a tick higher in green, but by about 46 points. Now, the S&P is off by one half of 1%, down 25 points. 4,090 the last trade there in the NASDAQ composite. Now below that 12,000 mark, 11,985 down by nearly 1%. Crew stocks are among the worst performers in the S&P 500 today. This despite analysts at Susquehanna initiating coverage of Norwegian and Royal Caribbean with positive ratings, saying they have pricing power and a history of growing capacity. The firm is taking a neutral stance on Carnival, meanwhile. For more on that call, by the way, head over to cnbc.com pro. Subscribers there will get the full story. Beyond Meat falling again after Piper Sandler reiterated its underweight rating on this stock this week, saying a successful launch of its jerky offering is masking a greater acceleration in declines for the rest of its portfolio. That stock's on pace for its ninth weekly loss in the past 10, and it's down 65% just since January alone. Meanwhile, shares of a firm lower again today. Today is the buy now, pay later company faces pressure from rising interest rates, debt concerns, and of course, Apple entering this space this week. That stock has now lost a quarter of its value just this month alone. Now let's send it over to Tyler Matheson, who's got the CNBC News update this hour. Hi, Ty. All right, Dom. Thank you very much. Uh, The Justice Department is starting a civil rights investigation into the Louisiana State Police. It comes more than three years after the 2019 death of black motorist Ronald Green. Police initially said he died in a car crash, but body camera video showed white troopers beating, stunning, and dragging him on a rural road. The Associated Press found Green's death was among at least a dozen cases in which troopers or their managers ignored or concealed evidence of beatings. Military officials now say all five Marines on board an Osprey aircraft died when it crashed in Southern California during a training mission. No details yet on why the aircraft went down, but the Osprey, which takes off like a helicopter and then cruises like a plane, has been criticized for its safety record. It's reportedly already responsible for some 46 deaths, not including this latest incident. And federal regulators are upgrading their investigation into 830,000 Tesla vehicles with what the company calls autopilot technology. After identifying six new crashes involving first responder vehicles at emergency scenes, the new stage of the probe would could set the stage for a recall. Dom, back to you. All right, Tyler Matheson, thank you very much for those headlines. Still ahead on the show, the 2022 Sewn Conference is underway and Wall Street heavyweights are revealing their best investing ideas. We are going to hear from one of the largest female hedge fund managers out there, Impact of Capital's Lauren Taylor Wolf. She's coming up next. And during June, we are celebrating Pride Month and featuring some of our CNBC teammates and contributors as well. 
Here is our clip desk manager, Cassandra Francavilla, on Pride Month. My son opened up to me about his true identity when he was a freshman in high school. His ultimate goal is to be a commercial airline pilot and fly internationally. But there are 71 countries where being gay is a crime and it's punishable by death in 13 of those countries. Pride is a perfect time for allies to commit or recommit to doing their part in achieving the best future for my son that's safe and fulfilling in any part of the world he finds himself. Welcome back to The Exchange. The 2022 Virtual Zone Conference is underway with some of the world's biggest investors revealing where they are seeing opportunities in a down market right now. Impact of Capital's Lauren Taylor Wolf just delivered her presentation and joins us now along with our own Leslie Picker. Leslie, Lauren, thank you very much for joining us. Leslie, take it away. Dom, thank you so much. And Lauren, thank you for being here. Hopefully next year we can do this in person. But again, Sohn was uh, once again digital this year, virtual. Uh, in your presentation, which just concluded, uh, you talked about WEX, which is a B2B payments platform. And you said you see a 100% some of the parts upside to today's share price over a three-year time horizon. What do you think are the catalysts for future value creation for WEX? Sure. Thanks, Leslie. So Wex is a high quality payments company that will generate double digit compounded returns, but is woefully misunderstood. Today, the company trades at discounted 13 times earnings. It hasn't traded there since the financial crisis, and its normalized 10-year average is closer to 20 times. This is partly for two market misperceptions. First is a concern around competitive new entrants in their corporate payment segment, and the other is around the unit economics once battery electric vehicles enter the fleet. Our view, based on our proprietary research, broad-based survey of 100 fleet managers representing tens of thousands of vehicles, is that once battery electric vehicles enter this hybrid fleet, there's huge revenue opportunities. And these are opportunities for the company to innovate creative new products around electricity price optimization, um, centralized reporting, carbon offsets, and they will structure those in a very subscription-oriented manner, which is higher quality in nature. That could drive an incremental billion dollars of high-quality revenue opportunity. Also, as we've seen over the past couple quarters, free cash flow and profitability are extremely important here. This is a company that's going to generate $2.2 billion of free cash flow in the next three years, in addition to about $2.3 billion of debt capacity over the next three years. That creates about $4.5 billion of capital available to deploy. That's 60% of the current market cap. The company can deploy that if they did. In share repurchases today, that would generate a 25% IRR. Alternatively, as we know, the, the, the price of assets have come down substantially over the past couple of quarters. They are in, in a unique position to go on offset, offense and do accretive M&A as an alternative with that $4.5 billion of capital available to deploy. So we see um, a great opportunity for a double in our base case and a triple in our upside case. That's interesting you mentioned that because the stock, not even including today's moves, which it did uh, go into positive territory after your presentation, is already up 25% year to date, while the ARC FinTech Innovation ETF is down 55%. Um, so you would potentially um, encourage them to be an opportunistic buyer. What types of categories do you think makes sense for them to do M&A right now? 
So this is a payments company. They have three different segments. One is the fleet segment, which I mentioned. The other is corporate payments. The fleet is about two thirds of EBITDA. Corporate payments is about 15%. And the remainder is what we believe is an underappreciated jewel, which is their health segment. That In that health segment is where they generate really SaaS oriented revenues that have compounded at about 20, 5% top line, 35% EBITDA. So there, we believe that there are going to be unique opportunities both to continue to acquire credibly in that space uh, in health as well as some in the payment space and fleet. Again, these as long as the M&A is as accretive as the Sherry purchases here at this price, given the upside that we see over the next couple of years as this company uh, achieves its plan uh, to compound earnings mid-teens to high-teens, uh, we would say that there, there's going to be opportunities abound across their three segments. Yeah, potentially somewhat of a roll-up strategy. And, and lastly, I just wanted to get your thoughts on the state of ESG activism. Most recently, Carl Icahn was unsuccessful in getting directors on the board of McDonald's, kind of managed this whole campaign over animal cruelty concerns. You recently dropped a similar campaign at Kroger's. Is, do you think these are kind of idiosyncratic situations, or is it a signal that investors may not be as enthusiastic about ESG activism as they were, say, in 2021. So listen, I think there's been a lot of noise with ESG. There have been a lot of new products out there. Our view from the start and the inception of our firm has been the environmental, social, and governance initiatives that matter are the ones that are linked to a business case, that are linked to profitability and long-run sustainable returns. It's why you see us with companies like WEX suggesting that they invest in battery electric vehicles because there's a billion dollars of higher quality revenue opportunity over the next decade. And with our other portfolio companies, we're designing ESG initiatives that one, address a business problem, and two, have a business case that drives long-term returns. So. Uh, I'm not an expert on what Carl Icahn is doing. I admire him, uh, broadly speaking. But what I think from, it, from an ESG activism perspective is if you have to link the initiatives to long-term sustainable profitability. It's not either or. Makes sense. Lauren right. Taylor-Wolf, thank you so much for joining us of Impactive Capital, fresh off of her presentation at Sone. Dom? All right, Thanks. Leslie Picker, thank you so much. Also, Lauren Taylor-Wolf as well. Thank you for the insights. Up next, we are hitting the tarmac to get into the anatomy of an airplane and take a look at the companies behind some of the components that go into flying. Check out this chart. It's a composite materials company, and it's up nearly 11% this year. Up, not down. More under-the-radar names are making big moves as well. We have those names coming up next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's dig into some of the under-the-radar names, radar being a key clue in this one. We are focusing on the names integral to building an airplane. So let's start with Garmin. You'll recognize it as a major player in the GPS market, right? But it's not just about cars and traffic. You'll also find it in the cockpit of a plane. Aviation, by the way, represented 14% of its sales last year for Garmin. Let's move on now and check out the shares, down 24% over the course of this year so far. Next up, you've got Hexel, one of the largest U.S. providers of carbon fiber, providing structure to the body of these planes. So we're going to move there towards the kind of airframe, if you will. That stock is up about 10% on a year-to-date basis, as you can see there. Again, up in a down market. And then finally, there's Triumph Group. This company manufactures 
repairs and overhauls, aero structures and parts like stabilizers and fuel gates for all those plane enthusiasts out there. Shares of Triumph are down more than 18% so far this year, as you can see. So are these names set to take off? My next guest thinks so. He's got a buy rating on all three of them, regardless of what they've done so far this year. Join me now is Ron Epstein of B of A Securities. He's a senior aerospace and defense analyst there. A wide range of coverage, Ron, by the way, in this particular kind of line of work that you have. So let's take us through these component makers. Why do these stand out as buys for you? What links them together? Yeah, sure, Dom. Thank you for thank you for having me on. Uh, when you think about investing in commercial aerospace, you have to think about a couple of different things. The companies that make the parts and then the companies that, you know, serve new airplanes versus replacement parts in old airplanes. And they're both set right now to be profitable. So if we walk through some of the names you talked about, Garmin's a very, very interesting one. Garmin, everybody knows from their wearables business and their consumer electronics business, but they are a, a big up and comer in civil aviation. Uh, they started out in general aviation. They've become a, a very big player in executive aviation. And I think soon you'll see them in large civil aviation. That's Boeing and Airbus airplanes. Uh, it's, it's an important piece of their business. It's a very profitable piece of their business. Uh, another name you mentioned, Hexel. Hexel, as you, as you said, is a, as a fabricator of uh, carbon fiber. But it's not just carbon fiber. This isn't the carbon fiber you'd find in your golf club or your tennis racket. It's a specialized carbon fiber that's used in aerospace, aerospace-grade carbon fiber. And they're a, a, the big supplier to Airbus. And Airbus lately has been doing quite well. Uh, and their carbon fiber goes into both some of their narrow-body airplanes and also they're, they're, they're wide-body, very large airplanes. And when you think about that, the best is yet to come. The wide-body market hasn't, hasn't yet recovered yet, and that's really going to be a nice tailwind uh, for Hexel. Uh, and, and Triumph Group is a, is, a, is a manufacturer of a lot of bits and pieces of airplanes, a lot of subsystems, actuators, mechanical things, uh, and, and they sell parts both into uh, the OE market and the aftermarket, and they do other maintenance, repair, and overhaul services. So all three of those uh, benefit from uh, the recovery we're in the midst of in, in civil aviation. And you've got a buy rating on all three. So, so we know those are, those are among your top picks. We often talk so much about just Boeing and Airbus when it comes to kind of like aerospace and, and, and aircraft. With these three names, you're breaking it down further. But how much is the macro bigger picture return of travel demand going to factor into your model as an analyst for how these types of companies do? Yeah, it's a, it's a very important question. We spend a lot of our time forecasting the demand for travel. Uh, we've been you know, saying now for quite some time that we expect global air traffic to get back to where it was pre-pandemic in about 2024. And that's about how it's playing out. Uh, the biggest variable there for global air traffic is what happens to traffic in China. With the shutdowns that we saw in China, that you know, kind of put a halt to their air travel markets for a while. So it's been bumpy in the Pacific Rim. But traffic flows across the, the, the North Atlantic, domestic markets within Europe, across borders in Europe, domestically in the U.S. have been doing quite well. So an important piece for all of these companies, both in their new OEM equipment sales and in their aftermarket sales, is the recovery in, in air traffic. And, and that's what we've seen. It's been, it's been bumpy, sure. to say the least, but it's been up and to the right. Uh, so it's been going the right direction right. Um, with, you know, with some you know, overriding volatility. All right. So it's Garmin, Hexcel, Triumph, Ron Epstein over at B of A. Thank you very much. Have a good day, sir. Yeah, thank you. Coming up on the show, inflation is slicing into pizza sales. The names that might be showing signs of pricing power 
and the chains taking a hit. That's coming up next. Welcome back. Food costs, labor shortages, and record high gasoline prices taking a bite out of some pizza chains. Kate Rogers joins me now with a look at who's getting hit and where the pricing power is. Kate. Hey, Dom. Well, Domino's and Papa John's, remember, were big pandemic winners, but they're being hit by rising costs like most others in the restaurant space. Now, looking at same-store sales growth last quarter, only Papa John's was the key name in the pizza world to see gains up 1.9%, while Domino's and Pizza Hut saw their same-store sales fall by 3.6% and 6%, respectively. Now, Kalinowski Equity Research projects that based on these metrics and average unit volumes for 2021, Domino's and Papa John's are relatively better positioned to handle cost pressures than the average Pizza Hut unit in the U.S., especially as Papa John's moves to close the gap between its biggest rival this year, uh, Domino's, based on full-year estimates from Kalinowski. Another factor that's wrapped into the equation here, drivers. Domino's, which famously does not use those aggregators, was hit by driver shortages last quarter. BTIG surveyed 300 active rideshare drivers and found that flexibility is most important for them, particularly for younger drivers. 56% saying it was their top priority above pay. The note suggests that names like Domino's may have to supplement with aggregators to get through current market trends. All this to say, these stocks have been hit hard despite seeing gains over the course of the pandemic. Papa John's down around 30%, Domino's down 27%, and Yum! Pizza Hut's owner down about 10% in the last six months. Back over to you. I am a pizza fan, so I'll keep a close eye on those for sure. Thank you very much, Kate. You made me hungry. That does it for (laughs) us here on The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.